This past summer, we have had a young man joining us and our pastoral staff this year as an intern, and uh, his name is, is Nick Stanton. And Nick has, I, I told him, I said, in all of the years that I've had interns, I've never had an intern that's been as actively involved in some really, really exciting stages of church life as we are here. In fact, I think his first week here, uh, he created a little table out in the front of the office, and he created his own little name tag there, Nick Stanton, intern. And uh, so if, if you came into the church and you saw that out there, then, then you know. But we had him working on uh, creating applications as we're going through this construction process. And I remember the first days out there going, what in the world is this? And I was thinking, welcome to the ministry. Uh, you're going to learn an awful lot. He has participated in our board meetings. He's participated in our architect meetings and counseling. He's done children's services. He's been involved in about everything that you can do because he's going back for his last year of Bible college. He's already taken his, uh, his license exam uh, to become a licensed minister with the Assemblies of God. And, and one of the things I love about this church is... I, I, uh, as we look forward and in moving into a new building, one of the things we want to do is, is develop uh, more and more of an opportunity for interns to be a part of it because this is a healthy church. And, and being able to have interns see what healthy churches do and how we do it and what it looks like is really, really valuable. Uh, but the last thing that Nick has to do is he has to preach to people. And uh, I happen to remember a time when he was in Fine Arts Festival that he and I were working on a five-minute sermon that he did, a short sermon. And I remember as a high school senior working with him thinking, there is unbelievable depth to this message that he's going to be preaching. And, and as we talked about the theology of what he was doing and breaking down the scripture, I remember being very impressed with him. And now that I can see God's hand upon him, I recognize that there's going to be a congregation somewhere that's going to be extremely blessed because of what God has deposited into him. And so at the end of our service this morning, we're going to be taking an offering for him. Uh, the school that he goes to has a matching scholarship, and we want to be able to provide the maximum amount so that they will match the scholarship. And uh, we haven't paid him much, and so he's really counting on your generosity today uh, through this offering. Uh, he's going to be talking in his message about just being honest with God and people. So I'm just being honest with God and your people. We really are counting on your generosity today um, as it relates to, to his future and being able to pay a school bill. But would you welcome with me Nick Stanton as he comes to share the word of God with us this morning. Oh, I love that this pulpit has a cup holder. It's fantastic. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for giving me this opportunity and letting me do this. Thank you, Pastor Doug, for letting me preach today. Thank you for the pastoral staff who have poured into me this summer. I've learned so much. Uh, it has been a crazy time. I do not ever want to see another publisher document. Um, that program is evil. I had to do the uh, Constitution and Bylaws when you made all those changes, and it made me rewrite the entire thing. Uh, <laughs> It was fun, though. It was fun. It was fun. <laughs> I want to thank my parents for uh, letting me come home this summer and spend time at home. Um, it's been fun. I got to see my brother. He leaves later this year to go, and um, I want to thank Pastor Doug specifically because without him, I wouldn't have been able to spend this summer with my brother before he left. Um, but without further ado... If you guys would please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalms 139. Now, Psalms 139, uh, just since we're going to be talking about it today, 
be prudent to talk about the author a little bit. Now, ancient sources attribute the author of this psalm to David. Now, for those of you that don't know, David was a shepherd who would eventually become the second king of Israel. He made a lot of enemies, he made a lot of friends, he did a lot of stuff right, and he made some really interesting mistakes. Lots of them. (laughs) But the Bible still calls him a man after God's own heart, so there's a lot that we can learn from him. Now, after looking at a couple of commentaries on this section of scripture, I couldn't find anyone that really definitively stated this was the time in David's life when this psalm was written. It's kind of a generic psalm that could have applied to most of David's life. There was always people coming after him. There was always the kind of situations that he talks about happening. But David, he's known as a great poet. And for those of you guys that don't know that the psalms are poetry or song. They're supposed to be sung. So every psalm you look at is a unit. It's one song that someone has written. So David has several songs that he's written in the book of Psalms. So as he begins in verses 1 through 4, it says, For the director of music of David, a song, You have searched me, God, or Lord, and and know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my goings and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You see, God knows everything about you, from your innermost thought to the number of hairs on your head. And it's really a beautiful thing that God knows you probably much, much better than you know yourself. It's an amazing thing. You see, there was a speaker at my school, and he came in, and he was talking about how he was counseling a woman that he didn't that uh, she didn't think that God saw her. She thought that she was invisible to God, that she was too small and God didn't care about her. So as he was counseling her, he was over at her house and they were sitting there and he felt God tell him to tell her that the night ends at the refrigerator, which makes absolutely no sense and it didn't to him either. So he was like, no God, I am not telling him that. I am not telling her that, that is, no, it just sounds ridiculous. But God kept prodding his heart and kept prodding his heart until eventually, before he left, it was like the last thing he did before he left the door, he said, I don't know what this means, but God told me to tell you that the night ends at the refrigerator. And she began to weep, which is kind of a weird thing to weep at if you think about it. But what makes it interesting is that she had a nightly routine where she would walk around the house and she would flip off every light and lock every door. And the last thing she would do before she would go upstairs to go to bed is she would reach into the refrigerator ice machine and turn off the light. You see, she thought she was invisible to God, but God knew everything about her down to her nightly routine. It's amazing. It's amazing. And not only does God know us, but he knows everything about us. It's beautiful. He never grows sick of knowing us. Every detail fascinates him. It's amazing. The Bible says that there is not a sparrow that falls without him taking notice of it. How much more do you think he watches you? Because you're so much more valuable than a sparrow. But what makes this even more beautiful than the fact that he cares about us and knows us is that despite knowing us, he loves us. Knowing all about us, there is a lot in me that is very, very very hard to love. There's a lot in me that's very hard to love. And knowing all that, knowing the good, the evil, the 
bad, the hopes, the dreams, the failures, the regrets, the things I wish I could forget. He loves me anyway. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And there's a security in this that we wouldn't have to worry that God will someday just stop loving us because we did something. God will love you and care about you and want to know about you no matter what. There's a security in it and a beauty in it. David then goes on in verses 5 through 12 to say, You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Search, uh, such knowledge is wonderful to me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise with, wings, uh, with the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold, fa- hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide, will hide me and the light becomes night around me, even darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like day to you, for darkness is as light to you. There is no place where God will not find us. There is no place where God is not. There is no place where we could hide or run from the presence and the love of God. It's beautiful that he will not leave us alone. He always wants to be with us. The Bible says that Jesus will never leave nor forsake you. But how could that be? There's some really, really dark places. Dark things, evil things. How could God be in the center of those? I had the honor of going to the Netherlands on a missions trip last summer. Uh, It was an absolutely beautiful country. If you guys get the chance to go, it's wonderful. But when I was in Amsterdam, I was in the Cory Ten Boom house. And... It's a beautiful house. Again, if you're ever in the Netherlands, find your way there. It's a really interesting place with a really interesting story. Now, I asked my Dutch friends how to pronounce Cory Ten Boom, and I am butchering it. They sent me a recording, and I apologized to them because there was no way I was going to be able to do that. But Cory was a woman who was born in 1892 in Amsterdam. Her father was a watchmaker, and the bottom of their house is where they would have their little store. It's still open. It's kind of neat. They still sell watches. It's pretty cool. But while they were doing that, during World War II, she would never get married. Um, She would stay single for the rest of her life. But during World War II, the Dutch houses, the way they're built, it's very hard to tell from the outside where rooms should be. So it's very easy to put a false wall. So as the Nazis were hunting down the Jews, they would use their house almost like a stop on the Underground Railroad. So they would bring people in, and women would give birth there, and they would go and hide their children, and they would um, be in this place, but they would put up a false wall. And any time there was danger nearby, they were actually just 200 yards from the Gestapo headquarters for Amsterdam. Shows you how bold this family was. But anytime there was danger, they would ring a bell and everyone that was hiding in the house would run to this place, but it was a false brick wall hidden behind a uh, uh, clothing pantry, like uh, where you would put towels in your house. And one day after doing this for about three years, they were sold out by an informant. And that just so happened to be the day that they were having a prayer meeting with the rest of the resistance workers in that area. So that day, Corey, 
her older sister, and her dad were all arrested, along with 30 other resistance workers, and they were all brought to the Gestapo prison. Her father would die at the hands of the Gestapo a few days later. Corey and her sister would be transferred to a women's work camp where she would spend almost a year. Towards the end of that year, Corey's older sister would pass away. And about 15 days after Corey's sister passed away, Corey was released on a clerical error. Someone had mixed up paperwork. A week after she was released, all the women from her age group were sent to be exterminated. God had his hand on her life. But after all of that, after all of that, for years she would go on taking care of people. She would buy one of the concentration camps and use that as a place to shelter people who had lost their home. She would go on to speak and teach. And one of the quotes that she is most famous for is that there is no place so deep that God's love is not deeper still. It's amazing. This woman who was betrayed by a friend watched her father, sister, and countless more die in front of her, had lice, was beat, was mistreated. All of that was able to say at the end of it, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Folks, today, if this woman who's gone through atrocities that we can hardly imagine can say that, can say that it must be true. Folks, God will never abandon you. Jesus loves you and will not leave you behind. The verse says that he hems in behind and before you. He acts as your vanguard leading the way, and he acts as your rear guard protecting you. Corey would lead Bible studies throughout her time in the concentration camp because this knowledge that God was protecting her gave her a boldness to speak and lead people to Christ in these, this concentration camps with a smuggled Bible. It's beautiful. But God will never leave you. He understands. Scripture says that not a tear falls that God does not take notice of. He is closer than a brother. I know that if I was ever in need, my brother would move heaven and earth for me. And we have a friend in Jesus who is closer than a brother. Can you imagine that? What God is doing on your behalf. Even in the darkest places, there is hope because of this. No matter where we go, Jesus is still with us and God will not leave us. We can rest in this fact and it gives us a boldness like Corey did that in the concentration camps, she would hold Bible studies and preach to people. It's amazing. I don't know if I would have that kind of faith. It gives us a peace because God will never leave us. And no matter what your problem is, God will always walk you through it and he is so much bigger than it. David goes on to write, You have created my innermost being. You have knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Have you guys ever just stopped and taken in the beauty around you, the way a cloud rolls through the sky or felt the thunder rumble in your chest? Have you ever seen a beautiful granite ridge rise up out of the pines of the Adirondacks or a curtain of stars fall over a night sky? The simple warmth of a spring day, a carp looking up at you from the murky green water of a river. These are the manifestations of the voice of God. He spoke and it was. He said, let there be light, and it was. He said, let there be stars, and there were. He 
spoke and animals burst forth from light. But after five days of speaking, he looked at all of creation and he said, you know what, it's not quite done. So he bent down and he took up some clay and he began to form what would become humanity. He viewed us as that special and everything else he just spoke and it was. He bent down and he took time to make us. But not only did he take time to make us, he breathed the breath of life into us. We are that special. He made us in his image. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. God made every aspect and detail of humanity. He gave us brains so powerful that it took the fourth most powerful computer in the world, it's somewhere in Japan, took it 40 minutes to process what your brain processes in a mere second. Isn't that amazing? He gave us creativity, and he gave us feet to move places and hands to build what our minds creatively created. It's amazing to me. And David tells us that he he made us in our mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully made. God poured over every detail of your life. He made you perfectly the way you are. When you were born, you were exactly as he planned you to be. It's amazing to me that he looked at every detail of our life and wove us together in our mother's womb. Now, there was this little girl. She had brown eyes, but she thought blue eyes were so much prettier. So she would begin to pray. She thought God had made a mistake with her. So she would begin to pray, and she would shut her eyes and look in the mirror and shut her eyes and pray and pray and pray and open her eyes, and her eyes were still brown. And she'd be really disappointed, and eventually she settled, like, God, if I can't have brown eyes, can I have green eyes? And that didn't happen either. But eventually, God would call her into ministry, and she would become a missionary to the Middle East. And she would go into this village, and she would begin to pour into the women there. And she would tell them about the love of Jesus and everything that he had done for them, that he had died and resurrected because he loves him so much. And people from the next village over had heard about this, and eventually a group of Muslim extremists heard about this, and they decided that it all needed to end. So on the day that they had decided that they were going to come and kill her, the women of the village took her, and they hid her. They put her in a burqa where all you could see was just her eyes. And as these extremists would come through to look for her, they would look among the women, but they couldn't find her. After hours of searching, they finally gave up and went home. It wasn't until much later that she realized if God had blessed her with what she thought she wanted, she would not have survived that day. If she had been given the blue eyes that she had so desperately wanted, she would have stood out and not been able to hide because all of the women from that area had brown eyes. God knew when he made her exactly what she needed and made every detail of her life the way he created it. God made you for a reason. Every detail of your life was made and thought out for a reason. And this is where our self-image should come from. The fact that the creator of the universe made us and he knit us together in in our mother's womb. He made us and he looked at us and he thought, I have made them perfect. I knit them together. They are fearfully and wonderfully made. When you put your self-image in light of that, we're all beautiful. 
We're all fearfully and wonderfully made. It's so much safer to put your image in that than what the world deems as beautiful because frankly, the world is so fickle and what they deem as beautiful is impossible to attain. But God made you beautiful from the moment of conception. He made you exactly the way he thought that you should be perfect. David continues on in verses 16 through 18. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in, your, written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious are your thoughts, God. How vast are the sum of them. Were I to count, they would be as numerous as the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. There is nothing that takes God by surprise. You see, he created time, so it stands to reason that if he created it, he lives outside of it. And all of time is laid out before him like a great string, beginning, middle, end, where we are. He knows all of it equally well. So nothing takes him by surprise. Every dark moment of your life, he's been ready. He's been with you. He's been willing to walk through it with you. But not only that, what makes this beautiful and amazes me is that with this grand plan that he has, so on the seventh day of creation, so for the first five days he was speaking things into existence, day six he made man, and day seven he planned everything. He wants us to be a part of that plan. That's beautiful to me that me, with all of my inconsistencies, all of my hypocrisies, all of the evil that's within me, he wants me to be a part of it. It reminds me of when I was little. My dad would be doing projects around the house. My dad's been a carpenter for just about as long as I've been alive, so he's picked up plumbing and painting and all that. But he would invite me and my siblings to come along and to help him with things. Not because he needed us, but because he wanted us to be a part of it. He wanted us to learn and to be a part of it. He loved us so much that he wanted to spend time with us. That is why God works you into his plan. Not because he needs you, but because he wants you to be a part of it. He looks at us and he says, I love you and I'm always going to be with you and I want to lead you into this. But how do we know what the plan of God for our lives is? There's a lot that could be said on this subject, way more than I've got time for in this sermon. You could probably write a whole six-sermon series on it and not even scratch the surface, but when you boil it all down, it comes down to three things. That you're people of prayer, that you read your Bible, and you live right. Because as you do those things, you become more attuned to the voice of God, and as you become more attuned to the voice of God, it's a natural progression that he leads you into his plan for your life. It's a beautiful, amazing thing. And it's at this point that David kind of takes a left turn. <laughs> oh boy. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you? Lord, I abhor those who are in rebellion against you. Have, I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them as my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So as I was reading this passage, I was like, yes, God knows us. God loves us. God is always with us. Kill people. <laughs> what in the world is going on? 
It's like David is using this beautiful metaphors and similes, and he's talking about how God knows us, and then he just diverts. And I was frustrated by this for a long time. I was really, really tempted to just chop it out. Um, it would have been so much easier. <laughs> it would have been so much easier, but the Psalms, like I said before, are written as a unit. And to understand the unit, you can't take chunks out of it because then you're taking words out of context. So after hours of staring at this frustrated, Pastor Jeff can attest, I eventually just gave up and fell, uh, fell face first into the back row. Um, I decided, you know what, forget it. I'll stop thinking about it for now. I'll come back to it in the morning. And as I was driving home, I heard God say, people need to stop being fake with me. You see, David had people hunting him that were hunting him unjustly. He had his son betray him. There's any number of possibilities that this could be talking about. But he's being honest with God. He sees this as something God is not acting on. He's viewing this as inaction, and he's saying, God, why are you not doing this? Don't you see what they're doing? Why are you not doing this? He's being absolutely, brutally honest with God. You see, we all wear masks. We all wear masks. Sometimes for very, very good reasons. There are some people you should not trust with your private information. That is a good mask to have. Other times, very, very, very bad reasons. Like you've been hurt before. So if I wear this mask and I keep people in an arm's length, then they can never hurt me again because I won't let them to the core of who I am. Or you have insecurities. So you project the way you wish you were and you walk around with a little strut and you pretend like you're something that you're not because if people realized who you really were, they might not like you. You put on this porcelain smile and it's fooling no one because it's full of cracks. But if I'm, been, but if I'm honest, we've all been wearing masks with God at some point or another. At some point or another, we use it. We don't show God all of our disappointments. We keep him at an arm's length, either because we don't trust him or we worry what he'll think of us. So we try to hide our disappointments, our fears, our frustrations from God, leading to prayers that really you don't care about. Like when you're three weeks late on rent or you just lost your job and you start praying prayers like, Lord, I just want to see you more. Lord, could you just show me your face? It sounds cool, but it really doesn't mean anything, especially when you're going through something that's hiding beneath the surface and you use that as a band-aid to cover because you don't want to talk to God. Other times, we, don't, we think we don't have the right words. So we start using, uh, there's a loving term we call it, it's called Christianese, which makes sense to no one at all, not even other Christians. It's fantastic. It sounds really nice. It sounds really nice. But it means nothing at the end of the day. But I get it. I get it. It's hard, hard to be honest, even with someone that loves you totally and knows you. But why wouldn't we be honest with God? Like we just said, he knows everything about us already, so you think you hiding that you're angry with him is hiding anything from him? He knows. It's kind of like when your kid breaks something, and you look at him like, you know what he just did, and they lie to you. 
It's kind of like that. He knows, and he loves you, though. He loves you so much. He knows all of that. He knows your fears, your disappointments, your failures, the things that you're sad about when you're angry with him. He knows that. So we should be honest with him. It's not like God is sitting up in heaven waiting for us to say that we don't trust him. God, I'm having a hard time trusting you. And he shoots a lightning bolt down at us. I would be very dead. (laughs) Or we just think that we need to pray using the right words that are high and lofty. If my words aren't holy enough, then God can't hear me. And we start to Gregorian chant. But God made you, and he made the way that your mind works. He made every aspect of you. So if you don't have the right words, use the words that you have. Some of the most powerful times in prayer that I've had have been sitting on my dorm room floor crying, saying, God, I just don't get it. I don't get it. Over and over and over, and God would meet me there. Because the Bible says there is not a word that when we pray, he already knows what we need. Just be willing to humble yourself and be honest with God. So this is where things change. They can change right here and right now. The first group of people are those you kind of keep God at arm's length and you need to do business with God today. You need to do business with God. You need to be brutally honest with God. At some point later in the service, we're going to have our deacons and people up here that are willing to pray with you and help you through that. The other group of people are those that don't know the love of God. They don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And this idea of a God that loves us so much, that will never leave us, that will never forsake us, that sees everything about you, and you don't need to wear a mask in front of, is sparking your interest let me tell you a little bit more not only does he love you and want to spend time with you he did this to the millionth degree you see at the beginning of time there was sin and that separated us from God but he loved you so much he made a way he sent his son to die for us because that is what sin demanded was that a perfect sacrifice be made and he loved us so much that he wanted to spend eternity with us that he gave up his son And all it takes is saying that I accept the sacrifice that you've given me and that I want to live for you for the rest of my life. So what I'm going to ask is that everyone would bow their heads. With every eye closed and every head bowed, I'm going to start on your right and I'm going to move towards your left. If you would make eye contact with me so that I can agree with you in what you've decided, I'm going to move from there, I'm going to move to the center right the center left far left if you guys would join and pray with me Lord I admit that I'm a sinner and God I see what you did for me on the cross I accept the sacrifice that you made for me. And I want to live for you for the rest of my life.
if you prayed that prayer today and it was your first time and you meant it, the Bible says that all of heaven rejoices for one soul that is saved because he loves you that much. He loves you that much. It's like what we sing about in certain songs that it's the overwhelming, never-ending, relentless love of God. Thank you guys for your time. I'm going to have Nick step down here on the floor and I like his mom and his dad. Would you come and join him? His family. I know there's other family members here today. Why don't you come and join him? We're going to pray for Nick this morning. That was a far better first sermon than I ever preached my first time. Of course, we didn't have short sermons to prepare us for those things. I'm going to ask that you would just extend your hand toward Nick. I'm, I'm always thankful when God gives gifts to people and then he begins to mature those gifts and then he begins to share those gifts. We're going to pray for him this morning. Father, thank you for a young man that is willing to say yes to you no matter what you ask him to do. As he proclaimed this morning during the word that you, from the time that you were creating him in his mother's womb, had written out his entire life. And to this point, we've been able to see the things that you have written. We don't know what is yet ahead, but we do know, Father, that obviously there's an anointing and an ability in his life that you want to begin to further, that you want to begin to perfect an influence that will lead others to come to know you. I pray that over this last year of school, that as he finishes his preparation and then is launched into a full-time ministry, that this would be a year, Father God, of great learning and of great absorbing of the things that he needs to know as you launch him forward. And then, Father, you already know where you're going to place him. You know how you're going to use him. But I ask that all of the natural fears that come our way as we begin to face things that we do not know, that you would begin to just drain those from him and fill him with a confidence that because you've called him, you're going to use him and that you will anoint him and that his life will be used in such a way that there will be people that will be in heaven because you created Nick. Thank you, Lord, for the time that we have had with him this summer as we begin to explore with him some of the things upon his heart and how he's had an opportunity to experience ministry in a new way here. And we ask your blessing upon him. Touch him, keep him, protect him, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And I might add, thank you for letting me be raised in a home where his mom and dad would confirm the call rather than trying to talk him out of it because there were other things that he could do. Bless them, we pray. Amen. Now I'm going to ask our ushers if they would please come forward. As I mentioned earlier, the school has indicated that they would give a matching scholarship to him this year for a certain amount, and then above and beyond that, we just want to be able to bless him because we know that college students have expenses. And so I'm going to ask if you want to make out a check, you can make it out to Grace Assembly. If you give online, you can go on this week and just make note that you want this love offering to go to Pastor Nick. That sounds pretty good. Father, bless this offering now. 
as we bless a man who has blessed us. In Jesus' name, amen. I couldn't help but think as I was watching our students at Fine Arts and as I was gearing, getting the reports back from uh, the students that were at camp this year, that God has blessed our church with an abundance of talents in our, in our students' lives. And I don't want to elevate that those who are called to ministry are more important than those that are called to other occupations because God calls and leads into all of them. However, because I'm a minister, there is always something that resides in my heart, and I'm always thankful to look and recognize that for those of us that have reached my age, we're going to have quality people to turn pulpits over to because God has been at work years before. And that's an exciting thing to be a part of, and I'm so thankful for all of that, and I thank you for your attentiveness this morning and your blessing this young man today. Would you stand with me, please? At the end of this prayer, I want you to know that our ushers and our pastoral staff will be here. If God spoke to you today and you know that I need to respond, then I want you, please, to come at the end. If you have a need within your body or your family that needs somebody to pray with you, then they're, they're going to be here for you because we believe in prayer and we believe in the power of what God can do through faith. So, Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for Nick and his word, which was powerful. Thank you for anointing it and applying it in our lives. May we leave here, Father, not just hearers of your word, but receivers and doers of your word. That wherever we go, we may go with the presence of the Lord, and there are people that you desire us to speak to and to minister to, so may we do so with the knowledge of this word today that's been planted in us. Father God, I pray that as we go with you, that you will constantly remind us that you know us, and that knowing everything about us, you still love us abundantly. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Have a great week in the Lord. And again, we're here to pray for you if you'd like us to this morning. God bless you.